0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Agrippina the Younger, she is one of the most remarkable women of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the daughter of the famed Germanicus, the sister of the crazed Caligula, the wife of the Emperor Claudius, and of course, the mother Of the infamous Nero and it's fair to say that the sources have not been kind to Agrippina the younger the woman who supposedly masterminded the death of the emperor Claudius with poisoned mushrooms and of course the poisoned feather but what is the fact in this portrayal what do we believe is the truth and what do we believe is the fiction well, joining me to answer this question is Carrie Flyner. Carrie is a fantastic classicist and medievalist, and she is also a brilliant communicator. so it was an absolute pleasure to have her on the show to explain all things Agrippina. Here's Carrie. Carrie, it's great to have you back.:
2: It's good to be back under very different circumstances, but that's all right.
1: Well, under very different circumstances, indeed, but history goes on. And I've been very much looking forward to this. Agrippina the Younger, this is a woman who seems to have fallen victim to the writings of later Roman historians.
2: Oh, he's not even later Roman historians. Her her bad press actually begins during her lifetime. There, there are writings from her lifetime. She's an interesting figure to study because you've got this bad press on the one hand and this, these historians on the one hand and who they're writing for. And on the other hand, you've got a material record that tells a completely different story. So it's a matter of looking at her or any other um, strong Roman woman and putting together a collection of sources, looking at, at very different sources to figure her out, to piece her together.
1: And who are these Roman sources?
2: The main sources where people are going to meet her are the same sources where people get to know Nero and Claudius and and the whole story. The most immediate accessible sources are what I call with my students the big three, and that's going to be Tacitus, Suetonius, and Diocassius. So they're the ones everybody knows. They're the ones who left behind the most complete record because you've got Suetonius with his biographies and the Twelve Caesars. With Tacitus, you've got his massive work, well, it's incomplete, but it's the Annales, which covers Claudius, and Nero's reigns. And these are the ones that people are going to be familiar with, because you can get them in Penguin paperbacks and the Loeb series and what have you. There are, in fact, many, many sources that do cite her. So she's mentioned in Josephus, she's mentioned in Pliny the Elder, a lot of inscriptions, coins, and what have you. But again, it's what's going to be most accessible to an undergraduate or to somebody making a movie or, or pop pop history and that.
1: And why do you think Tacitus Suetonius and Cassius Dio, how do you think they view powerful women in the early imperial period?
2: It's a good question. These these guys are, well, one is a biographer, so Suetonius is a biographer, and Tacitus is a rhetorician. And both of them have this purpose of writing where they're teaching lessons. And the lessons that are being taught is how to behave in public life, i.e. how to be a politician. And that is aimed at a male audience. So, Because they're writing at a male audience, because they're writing at people who might take lessons from them on how to behave in political life, they tend to judge the men they're writing about on their household and on the women in their household. That was meant to be the woman's role in in higher Roman society. She represents the domestic side of a Roman politician's life. If he can't keep his wife and children under control, how can you trust him as a politician, how can you trust him to run the government or to, to hold his particular office? So these writings, they're they're aimed at men who would be thinking about going into politics. They're written a generation, or more than a generation later, they're, they're almost 100 years later, 70, years later, looking back on this particular era. So they're also writing for an audience of the following dynasty from the Julio-Claudians. So, of course, they're going to be critical of that dynasty
1: fascinating so it's trying basically for later writers to try and make future emperors avoid this soft power influence as it were
2: i think you can put it that way you have history and image very strongly controlled during the era of the julio claudians which of course goes from augustus from about 27 bc through to nero our man here who commits suicide in 68 They controlled history very carefully. There are very, very few actual historians, quote-unquote, during this period. The people that Augustus patronized, for example, are going to be Virgil and and Horace, and writers who make the Julio Claudians look like the destined family to rule Rome. There are no real historians in this period. Our guys, um, I'm going to include Josephus in this, are writing... um, Much later, they're being patronized by the Flavians. Certain Flavians, such as uh, Domitian, he's the last of the Flavian emperors, also had a tight control over history. So when you have Suetonius and Tacitus writing, they're actually writing during the reigns of Trajan and Hadrian. So they're coming much later. They're familiar with what's happening with the Flavians. They don't like Domitian. So they're going to be very critical of these reigns that came before, so that they're powerful emperors Trajan and then again later Hadrian with uh, Suetonius they're going to become the new role models so they're looking back at what not to do of these these previous weaker emperors.
1: So let's have a look at Agrippina in a bit more depth then let's start with her early life so she is born at this time of radical political change in the Roman Empire but she's also born into one of the most prominent families of the time.
2: Mm-hmm. She was born in um, 15, so AD 15. And at that time, that's the year after Augustus dies. So Tiberius has just become emperor. And she's got a really powerful pedigree. Her, her mother is Agrippina the Elder, who was a tremendous enemy of Tiberius, actually. So there's a lot of baggage there. But a very popular woman. So her mother is Augustus's granddaughter. So Agrippina the Younger herself is a direct descendant of Augustus. And of course, she is going to play this up. Her father is Germanicus. He is a bloodline uh, Claudian. So he's directly descended from Livia. He's adopted into the Julian family. So Agrippina the younger and her siblings are the true Julio-Claudians because they're born of these two of these two families. Very powerful pedigree. She's she's descended from Antonia, so she's got Mark Antony in her background as well. So you've got Augustus there, Claudius, Antony. But it is very, very turbulent at the time that she's born. To be honest with you, there's not much known about her very, very early life. So at the time when she would have been a child is the time when her mother was in conflict with Tiberius. And of course, her mother ends up being exiled, then executed by Tiberius. She's got brothers who are executed by Tiberius. And it's a very, very dangerous time for her. So you imagine being this this small girl growing up in, in this atmosphere She's, she's married when she's 13. She's married to a man who's about 25 years older than she is. This is Gnaeus um, Domitius Annabarubus. The Anabarbi were a powerful family during the Republic. But by the time you get to Gnaeus, they've kind of fallen into obscurity. He's considered a bit of a kind of a waste of space, quite frankly. And it's this, this strange relationship between the two of them. They have only one child together. Um, Agrippina is only about 15 when Nero is born. And they have this one child together. And even, even Anna Barbara says, well, anything that's a product of our union is not going to come to any good. And you think, oh, God, thank you. That's magical, my prince. So she, she's got this tumultuous childhood that you just have to imagine. What is this like? You know, her her mother being dragged off in exile. Then then her, well, it's her brother Caligula, Gaius, who ends up becoming emperor. So her fortunes change a little bit during his reign. So we don't know much about her childhood, but how can that not shape you, seeing What's going on around you well
1: it's remarkable what you say there. you said her mother is exiled then executed obviously her father germanicus who has that very mysterious death in syria and and surely that must affect her but also as you say this political marriage married off as it were to this not remarkable figure it kind of sounds as if tiberius is trying to get rid of this possible threat by marrying her off to this distant so not very important figure
2: I would have to agree with that. The The quarrel that Agrippina the Elder has with Tiberius has to do with succession. Augustus wanted uh, Germanicus to succeed him, so Germanicus and Tiberius had been co-heirs for a while, and as you say, Germanicus mysteriously dies in Syria, which of course is imagined in in I. Claudius, that's what all my students know, oh, we know what happened to him. Subsequently, Agrippina the Elder's son should have been in the line of succession, and that's how she saw it. So this is um, Drusus and Nero, not our Nero, but Drusus and Nero, who are Caligula's brothers. And this is one of things that Agrippina the Elder was fighting for. She she felt that it should be her son's, not Tiberius. She saw that Tiberius was swinging the succession over to the Claudians and taking it away from Augustus's true heirs. And absolutely, even though Agrippina is just a young girl, Women have no official political power. They have a tremendous amount of influence. Anybody who married her is going to gain this influence. So even Anna Barbas, had he not been out, I don't know, peeling grapes or, or whatever it was he did in, in his dotage, he could have actually made a claim for, I'm going to call it the throne, even though they weren't kings. He could have made a claim through her. So you marry this pedigree. It strengthens your pedigree. Um, fortunately, quote unquote, for, for Tiberius or whatever, he's going to die and she ends up widowed.
1: So we talk about this, we talk about the death of Tiberius and the death of Ahina Barbus. And you mentioned it earlier, Agrippina's fortunes change when Caligula comes to power.
2: They change, well, they change literally and, and, and figuratively. She does have a second husband, and we don't know too much about him. Um, that's Pasquenius. He was very well-spoken. He's, if I'm not mistaken, and I frequently am, a descendant of Sallust. So he's got, he's got this grand background. He had been uh, a jurist during the time of Julius Caesar, and he was, he was very careful with his speech that he managed to survive this particular period. He's very, very wealthy. And as I said, we don't we don't know too much um, about him because he also dies so very young. Agrippina was blamed for that. It was, it was claimed that she poisoned him, but she, of course, gets all of his money at that point. So she's had the second marriage. Some of the things that I've argued about her education and her political savvy it makes me wonder because he himself, because Pescennius was so well educated because he was a jurist, did she learn anything from him? However, in terms of her life. At the beginning under, under the reign of Caligula, she was very, very privileged. Now, this is this is actually before uh, Piscanus, because um she pregnant or she had Nero at the time. I can't remember my timeline, I'm sorry, it's it's so it's so bunched together. Um, but during during the beginning of Caligula's reign, of course, he was very good to his sisters. He gave them all sorts of privileges. For example, he gave Agrippina and one of her sisters the rights of the Vestal Virgins. And This doesn't mean she became a Vestal Virgin, but it means that she became emancipated financially because the Vestals were. And this meant that she's got many more privileges and independence unlike other women even in the imperial family would have had. So she's got all these rights and privileges to appear in public on her own. She's got um, a special seat that she can have at the games that makes her very prominent. She's even got the equivalent of a sports car that she can tootle around Rome in that only belongs to, to the Vestals. Very important part of of Gaius's court. He's going to, uh, for example, issue coinage with his sisters on it. He he uses a lot of family imagery at the beginning of his reign because he wants to remind people he's a descendant of Augustus that women are so important to him. There's a there's a famous coin. I know this is audio only, but if you look online, he issued a coin of his three sisters as the three Graces, I believe, and he's got the names on the coin. The Ashmolean has one, and the British Museum has one. And it's the first time a woman is named on a coin he's doing with his sisters. He also puts them in oaths. So when you had to swear an oath at at the law court, you also swore your fidelity on these sisters' names. So things are going really, really well. Um, Unfortunately for Agrippina, things take a downturn. Gaius becomes, of course, very paranoid. He famously suffers this illness, and, and I'm not getting into that. But he turns on his sisters. One of, his, one of the sisters dies. Drusilla is the sister who dies. Um, Agrippina and her other sister are accused of treason. So they're accused of plotting against him. By this point, uh, Agrippina's been widowed a second time. So she's got Nero as a little boy. There's my timeline. Brought it back. Um, and he's going to exile Agrippina. So she's going to go from being the absolute pinnacle of power in terms of what a woman could have at the Julio-Claudian court to being exiled to an island where she's forced to dive for sponges with the slaves. That was her punishment. That was very humiliating. When she complained about that, you know, how can you exile me? I don't want to be in exile. It's in Cassius Dyer. And I would, I would have given anything to have John Hurt read this for me. But apparently Caligula's response to her complaints was, I have swords as well as islands. And it's just, it's just so tasty where he's threatening that, well, you should be lucky you're still alive. But she became a very good swimmer. So hold that thought. <laughs>
1: Hold that thought. Indeed, I mean. So she is in exile for some time with Caligula, and just just a reminder: she is Caligula's sister.
2: Yes, there are six of them that survive. Germanicus and Agrippina have an enormous brood of children. I think there's nine total. So there's there's six that live to adulthood. The two oldest are Julius and Nero. Again, not our Nero, and they should have been in line for inheriting. Um, the empire. Caligula's the youngest son who survives. And he goes by Gaius. He never went by Caligula um, during, during his lifetime. He didn't dare call him that. Um, so he's the youngest one who survives. And he's raised by Livia. And this is one reason why he's criticized by Suetonius, because being raised by women, they let him read whatever he wanted. The ultimate crime. And then there's the three sisters that survive. So it's Trusilla, um, Lavilla, and Agrippina who survive.
1: And quickly, before we just go on to when she returns from exile, you mentioned Livia just there. Is she a role model for Agrippina about how she can survive in this new regime?
2: I honestly couldn't answer that because I don't think there's enough in the sources to indicate where Agrippina and Livia are placed in connection to each other. It's a fascinating question because they are frequently compared, not only in pop culture, but you see it in a lot of more general histories that it's always Livia and Agrippina, simply because we have the most scholarship about them. I think what's indicative about how much power and influence they have, you've got Augustus who absolutely promotes Livia as his better half and his distal half. When Nero becomes emperor, he's only 16, and when he becomes emperor... And he gives this freshman speech, which probably one of his tutors wrote for him. He very clearly says in the speech, mine will not be a petticoat government. So in other words, there's not going to be any women influencing me. And if you know anything about Nero, you know how that went. So it's a tempting comparison, but it's hard to make a one-to-one comparison, if that makes any sense.
1: Absolutely. Quite understand. So let's go back to the exile then. This exile under Caligula, it doesn't last very long.
2: No, it doesn't. Um, She's in exile um, until Claudius becomes emperor. So when does he send her off? Actually, it looks like it's quite a while. Sorry, I've got my cheat sheet in front of me. Um, Claudius is going to become emperor in 41, and she's exiled in 40. So it's about a year, roughly, that she spends time. It must have been a very hard life, though. And when you don't know, is your brother going to send the assassins for you? at any time. Living under a cloud like that must have been very, very difficult for her. Plus, she's separated from her son. So Nero would have been just a little boy at this, at this point in time.
1: And so how does she return to the imperial fold under the next Emperor Claudius?
2: Well, Claudius is her uncle, and his brother, of course, is Germanicus, Agrippina's father. When he becomes emperor under extraordinary circumstances, which is probably very familiar to, to most people, he is a Claudian. He He's not directly related to Augustus. So he needs to shore up that connection. And one of the ways that he does that is, again, through the women in his family. So at the time he becomes emperor, he's married to Messalina, who's a distant cousin, much younger than he is, very beautiful. She is descended from one of Augustus's sisters. So of course, Claudius gloms onto that. So he's got that tenuous connection back to Augustus, where he can say, Mm, at least in my son, Britannicus, there's some Augustan blood. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, someone such as Agrippina, someone who's a direct descendant of Augustus, has a very powerful blood DNA flowing through her veins. And any man who marries her, any man associated with her, can have some great importance here. Obviously, Claudius is still married to Messalina, Uh, But he brings Agrippina, the younger, back from exile because she is the daughter of his brother. And so he's releasing a lot of exiles. He's showing it's a new golden age after Caligula and that he's restoring his family to its former glory. So that's, that's how she gets a foothold back in the imperial palace.
1: And you mentioned Messalina just then. Do you think Messalina perceives the return of Agrippina and her son as a direct threat to her and her own son, Britannicus?
2: I would have to say absolutely. There's no love lost between these women at mm-hmm. all. The uh, family that Messalina comes from, um, those are the, the Domitia, and Agrippina is going to have a great rivalry with this particular family. Britannicus, mm, Britannicus is Claudius's heir, but he's a sickly little boy. There's, there's some historians who think that he may have epilepsy. He may have had epilepsy, Messalina, again, she's only tenuously associated with with Augustus. It's not particularly unusual amongst Roman aristocrats, and especially in the Julio-Claudian family, to divorce for political expediency. So she might see, oh my God, this beautiful woman who's come back, who's a Julio-Claudian, she's going to be a threat to me. Maybe not so much with marriage, because again, Claudius' uncle it's a niece. So cousins, that's one thing, but she may be thinking, there's no way he's going to marry his brother's daughter. But she could have this tremendous influence being in the palace. Agrippina is very, very popular when, when she comes back. And yes, she's got this strapping son who is two years older than Britannicus. So now you've got these two direct descendants of Augustus back in favor. So it is very much a threat
1: and this idea of a threat—do you think these two women? It's more an idea of survival. It's all about being able to survive in this new regime.
2: Not just the new regime. I think any of them, because for all of these women, it's really who they're married to, and who they stay married to is going to provide their safety and security. When Agrippina comes back, she has a she has a number of suitors for her hand, and of course she can she can choose whoever she wants rather famously, she approached a man who was going to become an emperor. He's already married, and she's, she's already looking for people. Who can I marry? Who's going to be husband number three? And she approached um, Galba. He's, he's going to become emperor during that civil war. She approached him and basically propositioned him in front of his then wife, who punched her. So there's this big slap fight. But this is what women had to do. Agrippina is just a bit more Uh, Outspoken, at least according to the sources. But again, it's it's a matter of political survival, personal survival. What do you do? So she's she's important and dangerous at the same time.
1: It's fascinating how Tacitus and the later writers might try to depict this more boldness, as it were, from a a woman and try to deride it when actually it's just them trying to survive.
2: It's complicated baggage. It has to do with what the how the Romans would have defined what is masculinity and what is femininity, which is something that if any of my students are listening, you know that we go into in some depth because the Romans look at masculine and feminine traits as being attributes that can be embodied by both a man and a woman. And what happens with a woman who becomes too outspoken, too educated, too pushy, uh, or how the Romans would define pushy, aggressive, I think, or assertive, she's considered too masculine and she's not behaving as as a proper woman she's not being submissive she's not being the passive partner and some masculine traits in women are very much admired so if you're familiar with the grakki brothers the republican grakki brothers their mother's cornelia when the grakkis were killed someone commit suicide when when they die um uh, their mother remains very mm, these things happen and she's admired for this for for this restraint. And so Roman women are admired for this particular uh, restraint. Roman women are admired for raising their sons well and giving them good advice, finding them good tutors, giving them good advice, but then stepping back. Someone such as Agrippina or any of these women in the in the Julio Claudian family, they break the norm of what was considered the ideal Republican woman. So they're not acting like Cornelia. They're being very assertive. They're they're reaffirming their son's positions, even their own positions. One of the things about the Julio-Claudian period is it's completely new. People are more or less making up the game book as it, as it goes along. When, when we study Augustus in my classes, my students will say, wow, is he playing like four-dimensional chess? And I say, no, he's making it up as he goes along. You, you have to kind of imagine he goes home every night going, oh God, got away with it again. It's all new. They're, they're completely tearing up the playbook. So if imperial women in the Julio-Claudian period seem different, it's or more aggressive. Well, for one thing, Augustus promotes the women in his family. He makes sure that they're educated. He engages them in conversation. There's evidence in the resources and the histories from this period that he writes letters to them. He asks them for advice. He says, you are role models. So these women are products of Augustus and they're products of that particular time it's our guys like Tacitus and Suetonius who are looking back at the republic saying, "Oh no, honey, no, no. You're supposed to be this model woman. You know, you're supposed to be quiet like Antonia was. You're supposed to be like Octavia who had to put up with Mark Antony. You know, look look at the face, public face that she put on. She didn't she didn't handbag slap Cleopatra. She just stood there and said, "Oh yes, I've just been insulted." and waited for men to do something about it. So Instead of just acting as the catalyst, they went out and did something. But they are products of, of their time. Men have no one to blame but themselves.
1: <laughs> so this rivalry then between Messalina and Agrippina, when does it reach its height and why?
2: Well, between the two of them, it's a bit of a tricky question to answer because what's going to happen to Messalina? She's going to be executed. So Agrippina, the real rivalry isn't between Messalina and Agrippina. It has to do with a relative of Messalina's, a woman called Domitia, who's Messalina's aunt. But Messalina ends up being executed. Uh, she gets herself into a bit of trouble. She, according again to the sources, Messalina's she's she's another figure that's very difficult to study because we've only got the the, the written sources. She gets tangled up with uh, another Roman aristocrat. She has an affair with him supposedly they have a common-law marriage. And this guy declares himself the new emperor because Messalina is indirectly descended from Augustus. So he's able to say, oh, no, she's my wife now. I can be the emperor. This this is very charming the way it's portrayed in I, Claudius with with Chloe saying, but, but am I still the emperor? What, what's happening? Yes, of course you are. Do something, do something. So she ends up being executed because of course it's high treason. Adultery amongst the aristocracy, as far as women are concerned, is this very serious crime because of their role of being childbearers. When you're the wife of the emperor, and of course Messalina gets this reputation of being the imperial whore, that's her nickname, um, that she gets into a competition with the head of the Prostitutes Guild and wins. Um there's doubts raised that the children, including Britannicus that she has with Claudius, are they really his? It's it's a huge scandal. So supposedly his freedmen um, convince him to sign this death warrant. So she's executed. So that rivalry between Messalina and Agrippina ends uh, basically because Messalina sets herself on fire. That's an absolute train wreck there. So Agrippina comes out of that one fairly well. I know that sounds really strange, but she almost doesn't have to do anything as far as, as far as that's concerned. So now we've got this eligible bachelor in Claudius. Once Messalina's is out of the picture with children, who might not be his. What's a girl to do? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant
0: moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Well, so does it sound like Agrippina, well, would you say, does she not have to do that much then to navigate Nero into the line of succession?
2: Yes and no. Yes and no. Because, well, once once Claudius's Friedman convinced him to marry Agrippina, they, they tell him, she's, she's dangerous, she's single, you're single, you have very tenuous um, claim to the throne. Anybody who marries her, she is, she is the, the daughter, um, indirectly, of, of emperors, so she, she's um, got that uh, direct descendant, she's the sister of an emperor, you've got to do something. When he marries her, he has to have laws passed, because she is his niece. So it, it kind of becomes Uncle Daddy there. But it's not a marriage out of love. These these two do not love each other. It's it's power. He needs her. He needs that pedigree. She needs his protection. So obviously there's no children there. And she's still a young woman when she marries him. She's 15 when Nero's born. And Nero's 15 or so, 14 or 15, when she marries Claudia. So she's still quite young as, as far as women go. But there's no children. If you look at the sources such as Tacitus and Suetonius, it makes it sound as if she's she's a human bulldozer. She she comes to this weak Claudius and now you're going to make my son heir and, and change his name because he's actually called Lucius before before he's adopted by Claudius. So she she browbeats Claudius into adopting him and and all this. When you stand back from those sources and look at the material sources, you see that there's a lot of mutual reciprocity here when it comes to making. Adopting Lucius and making him Claudius's heir. On the one hand, it tightens the relationship between the two families, so it secures Claudius's position. It makes him look good because he's supporting this woman. Nero is older than Britannicus, he's stronger than Britannicus, so in a way, now you've got an heir and a spare. There is material imagery of Britannicus and Nero together as heirs. So there's coins that are issued with the pair of them on it. There is a temple in Aphrodisias called the Sebastian. Sebastos is just Greek for Augustus. It's a temple dedicated to the Julio-Claudians and there's a number of statues there of Britannicus and Nero together. So it, it was only recently discovered in the 1970s, but all the famous statues of Nero being crowned by his mother and all that, it all comes from there. There's much support for Nero now becoming, becoming this heir. He is very young. He is just a teenager. He's slowly introduced to public life. He does the equivalent of opening supermarkets, if that makes any sense. So he's, he's present at, at affairs where a young boy, just starting to, to get his feet wet in public life, would be introduced. It would have been foolish for Claudius not to adopt him and not to name him his heir. In the classical world, illness was seen as a, as a weakness of character. So if Britannicus was weak, if Britannicus had this illness, having a strapping young lad like Nero as your heir would have just made sense.
1: So it was actually very much a sensible, sensible play.
2: I think it is. I I really do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, again, saying that Agrippina was, was sort of sitting back like the happy mum seeing this happen. There, there are other things attributed to her. In terms of of securing of how aggressive she was in securing Nero's adoption, and basically double bracing this this adoption by getting Nero married into that family, so Nero of course is going to end up marrying his stepsister as well.
1: Before we get to the death of Claudius and the accession of Nero, is there anything in the sources that points to anything positive about Agrippina during the years of Claudius's reign?
2: Oh, I think so. Um, again. Read the sources critically. Um, if you read um, Anthony Barrett's got a, a wonderful biography of her, and I know there's a there's a recent one that's coming out or has just come out about her, which I need to need to check out. She's very well educated. She um, she wasn't really a patron of the arts, but she does secure for Nero really good tutors. So she makes sure everybody knows Seneca and Burrus as as his tutors. But there are there are a couple of named tutors prior to them when he's just a little boy. She's very helpful to Claudius in the sense that she hears um, ambassadors who come to speak to him. There's some indication that she's got a bit more political savvy than Claudius does. So you almost get the impression that once she becomes his helpmeet, his own capabilities, his own abilities as a speechmaker, as somebody who's meeting with government officials improves. And this is where, remember I mentioned earlier, when she's married to her second husband, that he was a jurist. And wives are frequently educated by their husbands, or they learn from their husbands. But she's also been at the imperial court. Claudius was never expected to become emperor. She probably has more experience than he does. So I think when you want to look for positive aspects about her, she's got this political savvy. She is very well educated. Um, she's She's not a soft, loving person. But and there's a few indications here and there that what we know about her mother may come from a memoir that Agrippina, the younger, wrote. So if she's writing a memoir, she is, she is talking about family. So she, she might be orientated um, in that way. So there there are positive aspects out there about her, but don't expect to hear that like she ran a home for kittens or anything like that. That's, <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's remarkable. Um, And let's have a talk about it now. What do the sources tell us about the death of Claudius?
2: The sources make it sound as if Agrippina was suspect number one. So very famously, um, everybody everybody knows. That Agrippina served Claudius a dish of poison mushrooms because that was his favorite meal, and you've got this image of her with uh, the paperwork, making Nero air and saying, "Sign this now, sign this now." Ooh, here's dessert, and that you know, the minute he signs off all the paperwork, she she has him slip on a banana peel. There has actually been there, there's some there's an article I can, I can dig it up for you later um, where somebody very very carefully demonstrated that she may not have been the person behind. Um, the poisoning, and of course it probably wasn't, I mean, Horrible Histories corrects everybody on this. It wasn't the mushrooms themselves. It's a poisoned feather that he used afterwards to to make himself vomit. Um, Whether she was directly responsible or not, the sources do make it sound as if she's going to capitalize on it. Shortly before he died, she issued a proclamation, a public proclamation, that if anything were to happen to Claudius, Nero would be more than capable of taking over. And you think, ooh, that's sinister. And you imagine her going off laughing like a James Bond villain after that. But again, if you step back from that, Claudius was not in good health anyway. Um, This is reassurances that this teenage boy who, again, doesn't have any military experience, hasn't shown himself to be interested in any sort of political history, but saying, oh, yes, if anything happens, look, we've got this heir. And this does go back to... Um, a tradition amongst the Julio-Claudians of always saying there's continuity. This person is is always there. After Claudius died, she immediately has the Praetorian guard name Nero the new emperor. Again, that looks very sinister. But again, if you step back from that, well, that makes sense because I mean, look at the look at the jamboree that followed Caligula's assassination with the, with the guard running crazy through the house and how do you know all these people aren't just going to rush forward and say, oh, I'm I'm an heir, I'm an heir, I can take over. I'll marry you, you know, the merry widow and that. So she has the Praetorian Guard issue this proclamation immediately. She also keeps Britannicus and his sisters locked away so the public can't see them. That also looks sinister. Why can't the public see them? I don't know. If If you look at it and you think this is somebody who has to do a lot of damage control, this is somebody trying to keep calm after Claudius dies, what's going to look like suspicious circumstances. You might have people who are still supporting messalina and her child. And you don't want to have this factional split. She saw that with her mother between Tiberius and his family, Gemellus, his grandson, and her own brothers. I mean, it's speculation, but it can be seen as very sensible. The sources, of course, immediately rush in and say, oh, just look at her. You know, she she seized her moment and she she hid the other children. But Britannicus is in the public eye after Nero becomes emperor. He's not hidden. It's just at that particular moment. It's a crisis moment. The succession is always a crisis period. So she's running around doing what she can. She doesn't want a repeat of what happened to her mother, I suppose, you could say.
1: Of course, because you see that past experience, as it were, as she's as seen from her mother, what could happen, as it, she's trying to make sure the same doesn't happen for her son.
2: I can see that happening. A little bit later in Nero's reign, during one of the quarrels Agrippina has with Nero, she tells him, you know, I made you emperor. I helped to make you emperor. There's a lot of baggage behind that statement. I'm not going to support you anymore. And she starts to support Britannicus. So she she might have been a, a difficult stepmother, and she gets this reputation of the wicked stepmother, which is a which is a cliché um, Judith Ginsburg wrote about the stereotypes of, of women in the Julio-Claudian family. But Britannicus is still right there and she's willing to to shift all of her support towards him at a time that she feels that Nero's being ungrateful.
1: Yes, and do we start seeing this wicked stepmother motif really starting to emerge in the sources during the early years of Nero's reign?
2: I'm not sure if it's really during the early years of his reign. I think the wicked stepmother image with Agrippina begins when she marries Claudius himself. So while Claudius is still emperor, because this this whole idea that Britannicus gets pushed to one side. The person who's the worst to Britannicus is actually Nero, because, of course, he's going to have him assassinated. It's interesting, too, that in terms of championing or being a champion of um, Britannicus, it's going to be the later Emperor Titus, the Flavian Emperor, who issues coins and other imagery with Britannicus's image on it because they've been playmates. And he does this not because Britannicus had been treated badly by Agrippina, but because he'd been murdered by Nero. So he's, he's trying to say you know sort of making it up to him if that makes any sense
1: fascinating so in that in that regard when Nero comes to the throne he is in these late teenage years how does Agrippina cope during these first five years or so of Nero's reign because they're actually it looks very good when he starts off
2: well, that's because he wasn't actually ruling. It's it's a golden age during those first five years, which I can't pronounce and I'm not going to try to do right now. But that first five years is is considered this, this golden age because Nero's not really ruling. It is, to all intents and purposes, a regency with Agrippina and two of Nero's tutors who are doing all the heavy lifting. So it's Agrippina on the one hand, um, his tutor Seneca, the younger, who of course was a teacher and philosopher, very well educated, and Burrus, who is the captain of the Praetorian Guard, who becomes Nero's tutor. Um, And Burrus was a client of Agrippina, so he owed her for his position. These are the people actually running the empire, and they do a crackerjack job of it. Agrippina is hobbled a bit because of course she can't take a public role there's a dodgy moment when Nero has to meet with his first uh, group of ambassadors. He doesn't know what to do. He he doesn't have any any experience, any background. He sat there while these these clients, while these embassadors want to come forward and speak to him. He he just kind of sits there. Well, what, what would you do? You're 16 years old. You've never done anything like this before. And and these ambassadors are coming towards you. You have to imagine him just sort of looking around, like, what do I do? Agrippina is off to one side or, or behind. She, she she, eventually is going to attend meetings behind a curtain. You have to imagine her going, oh, for goodness sake. She strides forward to meet with these ambassadors. And it's only very quick action from Seneca and Burris who leap into action, grab Nero, push her out of the way to stop a regency government from forming on the spot. So they have to get her out of the way and push him forward and activate him. It makes me think, in the United States, we've got, we've got these little kids who play, um, uh, it's, it's called t-ball, which is like baseball, except you don't actually pitch to them. They hit a ball off, off a little mounted peg. Little kids don't know what to do. They hit the ball and they just stand there. So the parents come and they run them down to first base. This is kind of what's happening to Nero at the beginning, is he has to be activated. So his, his tutors are writing his speeches and Agrippina is acting behind the scenes. She has more experience than he does. She, she'd been, Claudius's helpmeet in that respect.
1: But it's remarkable how it's still very much it is influenced behind the throne, as it were, from that, especially from that scenario that you were describing just then.
2: It has to be. Women cannot legally hold a political office. They are not meant to be in the Senate House. If they're in a courtroom, it's because they're a plaintiff or a defendant. They're they're not meant to be running the show. She she was eventually allowed to attend Senate meetings, but she had to stand behind a curtain so she couldn't be seen. And the sources, I think it's Diocasius who who says that she would frequently be shouting, and you just see the curtain sort of billowing as she would be punching the air, um, um, getting in getting in her tuppence. So she she does have to stay behind the scenes, but Nero acknowledges his debt to her. He puts her on his coinage, for example, and. You can tell that this relationship is accepted throughout the Roman world, because, again, this temple in Aphrodisius, these are the Greeks. these are outsiders who depict her with him in in very prominent positions. so she she features on his coinage. The inscriptions on the coinage are very significant because you know often it's Agrippina, mother of Nero, or Nero, son of Agrippina. Um, so her name is very prominent on on his coinage as well as her image,
1: so in the east, where the, the ruler cult is very prevalent, especially when the rulers are still living, do we see Agrippina featuring in this ruler cult for a period of time?
2: The evidence that I'm most familiar with, again, I have to keep going back to my beloved Aphrodisias. She's um, she's depicted on a very famous statue. So if everybody could could quickly go out and Google, there's a famous statue where Nero's just become emperor, so he's a young boy stood there, and she stood. She's dressed in in the in the guise of the goddess Ops. O P S which is the goddess of plenty. She appears to be putting a crown on his head. And that's been interpreted by many people, many of my students as, oh my God, she's making him emperor because that's what she says. She's not actually, she's being shown as giving him to the Roman people because that's how she makes him emperor. She gives birth to him, her blood becomes his blood. And in this statue, as this goddess and it's not unusual for these empresses to be depicted as goddesses of plenty. Um, Livia was frequently depicted as Ceres, for example. Um, Opsis is is another goddess of plenty. So in this particular statue she's putting this flower crown on his head but she's also holding a cornucopia which is spilling out with all kinds of fruit and flowers and things like that. He's meant to be part of that. So as far as as that goes with the imperial cult in the east, I think as, as, a, as a woman, she's being perceived as giving this to to the Roman Empire, giving this boy to the Roman Empire, this new Augustus.
1: So when do the coinage of Agrippina start? When does it start to fade? When do the statues start to fade? When does this relationship between Agrippina and Nero start to fade?
2: We hear a lot about Agrippina in the sources up to and in in the reign of claudius and then in the first year or so of nero's reign that's when she's very active so this is 54 when he becomes emperor she more or less disappears from the sources until about 58 or 59 so that five years when we know all this good stuff is going on um it's not really remarked upon by tacitus and suetonius probably because it is good times and, and the good stuff's happening they like to they like to point out the the bad times by the time you get down to 59, which of course is the year that Agrippina dies, um, Nero is about 20, 21 years old, and he starts to rankle a bit under the fact that mom is controlling everything and that his tutors are controlling everything. One has to be very careful here, because you don't want to start looking into, oh, it's very Freudian, that he's having mother-son issues. Uh, Miriam Griffith, who also has written a, an excellent biography of Nero, stresses this, that it's so tempting to go Dr. Freud on the pair of them. But then as now, if if you're 21 years old and, and you've been helped through your teenage years, you're an adult now. And And for the Romans, he would have been well into adulthood for a man at 21. Um, That may be one of the issues that he chafes. He also, for want of a better term, discovers girls. And he doesn't want to be under the grip of of his mother in that sense. And again, this is where Tacitus and Suetonius are going to play this up, that it's going to be more women manipulating him and saying, well, you know, if, if you re- if you were a real man, you know, I'll, I'll be your mistress or I'll be your wife, but you've got to get rid of mum. Y- you've got your mum hanging over you. And so there's there's some fudging with the dates and the sources about the actual timeline when this sort of happens. But yeah, in 59, he's, he's getting tired of her. So the, the bloom's off the rose. She She's not in his coinage anymore at that point. Um, she had had Splendid digs up in the Palatine Hill, because that's where all the imperial palaces are. And she ends up, oh golly, she ends up going back to her own estates. There is a point. I'm leaving out a lot of stuff, but there is a point where he sends he he takes away her bodyguard. He takes away um and blocks her from being with a lot of her supporters because she's got this whole posse around her. And he's got he's got this gang of his buddies who just harass her. They go to her house and they stand outside her gates and they shout things at her and and just harass her and annoy her. Um, it's very childish. But that's that seems to be how he rolls. So she, she is falling out of favor. She herself, again, we have to use the written sources for this, isn't helping matters because she is constantly reminding him that he is not showing her the gratitude that he should. She made him emperor. And again, this is where people run with it saying, oh yeah, that's right, she killed all those people. She's arguing that as his patron, as his mother, she made him emperor because of who she is, because she's this descendant of Augustus. And if it wasn't for that, he'd be a nobody. So there's tension on both sides.
1: That's remarkable. So how does it transform from Nero being, well, as it were, I'm fed up with you, mum, to I'm going to assassinate you?
2: It's a complicated timeline. We'd we'd have to do like a six-part special on this, I think. It's very complicated, and our three main sources, again, Tacitus, Suetonius, and cassius they have all kinds of crazy stories about what he wants to do. It may start, indeed, where Agrippina is, again, berating Nero for not showing him the, the gratitude that he should, and as I said earlier, she tells him, I'm not going to support you anymore. Um, I'm not going to support you as emperor anymore. I've written a tell-all book, which I'm going to publish, and people are going to know all about you." She did write a memoir. She, she's the only imperial woman that we know that, that wrote a memoir, and little bits and pieces of it are quoted by Tacitus and Pliny the Elder. She probably didn't write about where all the skeletons were buried, but she threatens him with it. She says, I'm going to publish this, which resonates now, doesn't it, with some of the things going on in the world about leaders. Um, so she threatens him with that, and then that's when she says, I'm going to support Britannicus. Nero immediately freaks out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got to kill her! I got to kill her! And he's he's talked down by his his um, tutors, especially Burrus, because of course Burrus owes his his position to Agrippina. Saying, "Don't don't kill the old lady. Just get rid of your rival." So this is when Britannicus is murdered, and it's it's done in such a blasé way, but it's done right in front of Agrippina, who has to sit there and just act like nothing's happening while this while this boy dies in front of her. Because it happens at a dinner party while well, he dies in front of her. And Nero just blithely goes on eating, saying, "Oh well, he has a, he has epilepsy. He does that." While this while this poor boy is is fitting on the floor and dying in agony from poison. So that's one rival out of the way. Now Agrippina does rummage around in the nursery to try to find somebody else to support over Nero when she when she's so angry with him. Um, and the guy that she chooses just heads for the hills once he finds out that Agrippina is, is wants to support him. He's like, "Oh hell no!" And he gets out of here. He sees a distant cousin, and he leaves town. Again, when Nero learns about this, he he wants to have her killed. He's desperate to have her killed. For a while, he's been having um, a relationship with a freed woman, a former slave from his own household, a woman called Acti. He's been tormenting Agrippina that he's going to marry this girl. And this would put, of course, the marriage that's been arranged with his stepsister into a mockery, and it would put everything he did with Claudius into a mockery. Nero um, starts putting away all the statues he has of Claudius and commissions statues of his bio dad, you know, this, this absolute ne'er-do-well. So he's, he's, he's trying to undermine Agrippina's authority that way. Agrippina tries to, to, to strike back. Again, like I said, she's, she's rummaging around. Nero finally reaches a point where he says, I've, I've got to get rid of her. And according to the sources, he comes out with all of these crazy schemes that he's, he sends her a, a collapsible bed. So he sends her a bed that's like a canopy bed, but it's got a lead Canopy instead of a cloth canopy, as you might suspect. And of course, it collapses, and, and she escapes from that under various scenarios. There's another story that, as you know, Nero is very fond of the theater. He loves theater, and he loves all the craziness that you see in the theater. And that he had seen a production, one of these productions where they where they dam up the theater and they flood it, and they've got ships and they do sea battles. And he saw this one production where they had these ships where the fronts came open kind of like the D-Day ships where they could roll the tanks out he thought that was really cool and he thought what if I gave my mother a ship that fell apart like that so he gives her this wonderful ship one of the stories the stories that I tell I try to combine them a little bit because it's great drama that she she's invited to this dinner party now he's been mean to her for so long that when he invites her to this dinner party she's oh thank you it's about time that you show some respect for me Wonderful dinner party. He's praising her. He's giving her presents. He's opening up the vaults and giving her jewelry and clothing that belonged to previous empresses. You'd think after all this time she'd be suspicious, because anyone in the Julio Claudian family who acts nice to anybody else, me, I'd be instantly suspicious. Then, and he says, "Well, why don't you take your new boat home?" He's deliberately made sure, because she's had to sail across the bay from her estate. He's deliberately made sure that her boat's been crippled. As as she was sailing over, he had his buddies go out and ram her boat. He said, well, your boat's had a commission. Why don't you take the new one home, which is this collapsible boat? Okay, fine, great. So she, as she's sailing back that night, the boat falls apart around her. Just to make sure, Nero sends some of his cronies out to to kill any of the survivors in the water. So, of course, these guys are sailing around, and they're calling to survivors. Agrippina's maid starts calling, I'm over here. I'm Agrippina. Come and save me. I'm the emperor's mother not realizing they're assassins. So they row the boat over and they beat her to death with oars. Remember I said earlier, hold that thought. Agrippina's an excellent swimmer. She's able to swim to shore. It's about this time when she starts to twig that maybe her relationship between herself and Nero's gone south. She manages to make it home. Nero's partying because he thinks he's got Agrippina out of the way. She sends him a letter saying, Dear son, if you were worried about me, I'm fine. How are you? So this is when he absolutely freaks out, sends assassins. Um, the well, the poor guy uh, that she sends um, with the message, um, Nero has killed Nero. Nero does. You know, like in in really terrible films where where cops will plant things. Um, there's this episode the young ones where, where the cop just literally throws a bag of marijuana at, at one of the one of the students. Says, "Ooh, ooh, ooh, planted drugs." Agrippina's messenger is standing there giving this message, and Nero has one of his soldiers throw a sword on the floor, and says, "Is that is that a sword? Are you trying to kill me?" So he has her messenger killed. It's it's absolutely nutty what's going on here towards the end. These assassins are sent um, to Agrippina's uh, palace. I can't I can't imagine she's surprised. And according to the story, they they knock her to the floor, and. As she manages to gain her feet, she tells them, she, she points to her womb and she says, if you're going to kill me, strike here, because this is the source of all of Rome's troubles. So she gets that last word in as well. But it's, it's completely over the swings towards the end. There's a movie out there.
1: <laughs> it sounds like she has this, this last noble death speech, as it were, given in the sources.
2: Oh, they, 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 do, they do give this to her. And what's really interesting... It's long before Tacitus and Suetonius and definitely long before Diocassius are writing all of this. In Nero's lifetime, there's a tragedy that's written and performed called The Octavia, which is about his wife, his first wife, whom he also has executed. And in The Octavia, which he may well have seen, um, Agrippina plays a ghost and she actually has a lot of noble speeches that she gives. So this is one of the few sources excuse me, it's not a historical source, but it'd be pop culture and and how she's being depicted in current popular culture. And she's being depicted as this vindictive ghost and actually a supportive mother-in-law of Octavia. So she sometimes has this reputation of being very mean to Octavia, but yet in the Octavia tragedy, she's being shown as being very supportive to this poor girl who is being portrayed as a victim of Nero's um, incompetency and, and evil.
1: It's interesting what you've just said, though, especially the last 10 minutes, is that she's at least trying desperately to survive under Nero, especially when she starts losing favour. But at the end, when she feels that there's no more hope, as it were, she has this very, as the someone like Tacitus might portray it, a very virtuous, noble end.
2: It, it is a last noble um, stand. And considering how much she is criticised by these sources, a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that Tacitus and Suetonius are criticizing Nero. So they're portraying her as being someone who's manipulating him, as, as wearing the trousers in the family as it is, and yet she gets this last word to show even more so um, how, how weak he is as a character. And then you also get in the sources that it's Tacitus who emphasizes once Agrippina is gone, a lot of the restraints against Nero are gone. So even when she was out of favor, she still had this influence over him and that he, he, he completely gets out of control once she's gone
1: yes does this definitely appear a clear turning point in Nero's rule
2: I think so there's there's a turning point period between 59 and 62 because he's also going to have a big purge and there's there's a rebellion in 62 where he clears out a lot of his cronies and buddies who hang around him but I think her death her death is usually marked as, as a turning point if you're reading books about her, if you're seeing films. I mean, I'm just as guilty of it because when I do my lectures on Nero, the first lecture ends in 59 um, and then we pick up again with, with, the, with the purge of Senegal Burrus and, and his other little buddies in 62.
1: Absolutely. Kerry, that was absolutely fantastic. Agrippina, she, she sounds like one of the most remarkable but misconstructed figures of antiquity.
2: I think so. She's she's a very complex woman, and fortunately, the last fifteen or twenty years or so, just on scholarship of Roman women themselves, there's been a lot of reevaluation and a lot of reconstruction um, of of what, how we can interpret their their lives and and their reigns. I suppose you could even say.
1: Brilliant, Kerry. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: It's been fun. Thank you.